And in some sense, um, the talk this evening is complementary to what I did last week in that it is not concerned primarily, as last Monday's lecture was with Blake's visual side. I did talk about other things, but I was very much uh, concerned with looking at Blake, um, the visual artist. And um, this evening, I am concentrating entirely on the poetry and the text and ideas, as it were. And to this extent, um, I will be focusing on, as you know from the title of my talk, on two early um, prophecies, if you like, the Song of Liberty and America, and linking this to the theme of myth and history. Um, these two works um, are extremely close to each other, both in time and theme so much so that the latter and somewhat later creation, that's America, frequently quotes the former. But I also hope to make some connections relating to Blake's work as a whole, mainly in the area of poetry and ideas, as I said. Now, A Song of Liberty, printed as an appendix to The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, 1793, is significant in that it contains the embryonic first version of Blake's myth of his own times, embodying the initial ground plan of his mythic ideas as a frontal conflict between the newborn terror, then named Orc in America, and the starry king, then named Urizen, figures whose actions reverberate throughout the rest of the poet's work. In America, a retrospective celebration of the American War of Independence, 1775 to 83, the same personages reappear in a much more historical context and accompany actual persons such as Washington, Franklin, Payne, and others, so that we get a peculiar mix of the mythic with the topical, where the political and spiritual go hand in hand, and one is seen in terms of the other in a very Blakean kind of synthesis. Indeed, as I have come more and more to see it, Blake's spirituality it seems to me, expresses itself not only against a backcloth of almost continual conflict from the Seven Years' War of 1756 to 63, into which he was born, the American and French revolutions, the Peninsular War of uh, 1808 to 14 in Spain and, Port and, and Portugal, which was part of the ongoing Napoleonic Wars of the time, up to and including Waterloo but itself also emerges from, this is Blake's spirituality, and mirrors this conflict, which is not to, uh, at all to say, however, that the sources of this spirituality lie there, only that significantly they operate in and through it. For instance, a staple feature that appears as the final line of a song of liberty, namely, quote Blake, for everything that lives is holy, repeated both in America, uh, visions of the daughters of Albion, and later the four Zoas, is an assertion of belief made through and beyond the conflict. In A Song of Liberty, it is uttered by the chorus, as we shall see, to mark a successful outcome of the preceding cosmic battle in terms of freedom. But it is essential to note, in each case, the use of the preposition for, which relates the statement back causally to what has preceded it. That is, the statement does not stand on its own, but is conditioned by the foregoing context. Hence, everything that lives is holy is proclaimed, as it were, in spite of the surrounding pressures of a negative uh, reality. Clearly, in one sense, it's a restatement of the poet's experience of this belief in a condition of primal innocence and the sacredness of all phenomena, 
such as we get in most religious traditions. Yet it is necessitated out of and against the grain of his own times, possessing greater urgency and power because of this. Now Blake's entire output can, I believe, be seen as the visualization, symbolization, and poetic embodying of ideological, spiritual, and psychological opposites and factions. And not only in his work of the, of the politicized 1790s, in this he is of his age, and at one with Jane Austen's war of ideas, to use Marilyn Butler's phrase. The young Wordsworth in France, Shelley's dramatic conflict in Prometheus Unbound, and Beethoven's sonata dramas and symphonic struggles. Blake's confrontational world is most visible and accessible, of course, in Songs of Innocence and Experience, where he shows, quote, the two contrary states of the human soul, as his subtitle puts it. However, on a wider scale, we get the cosmic politics of those early prophetic books, America and Europe, uh, the vast creation conflict of the book of Eurism, uh, about which you will hear uh, much um, in the following two weeks, and finally, the process of reintegrating antagonistic entities and forces into something like a reconstitutive whole via the inner world epics of the four Zoas, Milton and Jerusalem. In these long poems, the path to reintegration is literally fought out so that the New Testament epigraph in Greek from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, placed on the title page of the manuscript of the four Zoas, is worth quoting. This is the authorized version. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This simply transposes, one might argue, the political um, to the spiritual realm. Or perhaps in reverse, the, the, uh, the political realities mirror the spiritual realm as Blake sees it with dissension now being that of his introductory poem to Milton. We all know this, I will not cease from mental fight. Um, and so on, till we have built Jerusalem. So, This overall stance is in any case very Blakean, and it would appear to be the only way he sees of building Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land, where combative participation is clearly viewed as a constructive act. Indeed, everywhere in the poetry and painting, emphasis is placed on what is termed action. Quote Blake, all that is not action is not worth reading. That is, visionary movement and progression rather than contemplation. This is part and parcel of a visualizing, symbolizing activity, the reverse of meditative. Not at all Wordsworth's, I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show, the, the, the show to me had brought with its characteristic retrospection providing meaning and significance. With Blake, a deepening understanding has to be fought through to, not meditated through. And such a tactic would fit in psychologically with an inner world composed of warring mythic figures. During the 1790s, Blake lived very much at the heart of London, uh, dissenting circles, religious and political a world of engravers, printers, book illustrators, small traders and artisans who formed a pamphlet-consuming debating public nourished by millenarian hopes and visions such as was very different from the genteel gatherings around portrait painters like Sir Joshua Reynolds and Sir Thomas Lawrence in the polite drawing rooms of the day. 
However, Blake did have access to the latter, as witnessed this account from Lady Charlotte Berry's diary for the 20th of January, 1820. I dined at Lady Caroline Lamb's. She had collected a strange party of artists and literati, and one or two fine folks, who were very ill-assorted with the rest of the, of the company, such as Sir Thomas Lawrence, the portrait painter. Besides Sir Thomas, there was an eccentric little artist by name Blake. Not a regular professional painter, but one of those persons who follow the art for its own sweet sake, and derive their happiness from its pursuit. Mr. Blake appears unlearned in all that concerns this world, and from what he said I should fear he was one of those whose feelings are far superior to his situation in life. He looks careworn and subdued, but his countenance radiated as he spoke of his favorite pursuit. Here we get a revealing glimpse of an unusually mixed gathering from the late Regency, where artists, genteel and otherwise, are consorting together. It's, it's, um, I don't know whether you, you may well know this, that it's probably only um, under the aegis of somebody like um, uh, Lady Caroline Lamb that such a meeting could take place. She was a mistress of Byron and a very flamboyant and notorious London society figure. She could do that, as it were. Um, however, it's the former world of religious and political dissent, not that of portrait painting, which Blake intensely disliked, that gives birth to a song of liberty and America, a world that seems to have been a curious yet characteristic mix of the scriptural, political, historical, and mythological. Two movements of mind and spirit are significant here, the growth of a historical consciousness and the appearance of the so-called mythological school in biblical criticism. I think these two are actually linked um, it's not uh, insignificant that they come around at round about the same time. And the latter is a mainly German phenomenon throughout the 1780s and 90s, which influenced Coleridge, for example. In the case of history, one thinks of Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire, 1766 to 88, which Blake undoubtedly knew, since he refers to Gibbon several times, albeit negatively, in company with Voltaire, Rousseau, and Hume. One can think, too, of the birth of the historical novel in Scott's Waverley of 1814. In the case of biblical criticism, we have to date no clear-cut evidence of any influence. But as Eleanor S. Schaffer points out in her remarkable Kubla Khan and the Fall of Jerusalem, quote Schaffer, in the 1780s and the first years of the 1790s, there was considerable interest in and knowledge of the German biblical criticism. Uh, incidentally, what the Victorians would later dub the higher criticism. George Eliot was greatly indebted to this. She knew a lot about the higher criticism. Uh, uh, continue with Schaffer. But as the political climate darkened, biblical criticism fell under the general ban of radical opinions. And this meant, as she further says, that, quote Schaffer again, the biblical critics in Coleridge's, and we can add Blake's time, most particularly in the 1790s, were engaged in showing that the sacred texts belonged to mythology. The new harmonizing of the Bible with other mythologies that emerged from the struggle between the claims of a scientific scholarship and the claims of traditional religion yielded at last a series of vital answers to the question of what system of the supernatural could be made viable in modern poetry. One has the sense that during this period, uh, there were several competing and interacting mythologies. 
just as there were variations on the Christian inheritance and indeed um, the radical inheritance, political I mean now. Now with this in mind, it's perhaps easy to see how Blake can interweave the scriptural with his own mythological in a song of liberty, which will come to America and the later epics, and in so doing remain more naturally of his day and age than we sometimes think of him as being. Two biblical critics are relevant here. J.G. Eichhorn, whom Coleridge had read and then met in Göttingen when he was in Germany in 1798, and J.D. Michaelis, of whom Stephen C. Berendt has said in a very interesting volume called Blake, Politics and History, edited by Jackie DeSalvo and others, uh, Blake could have become familiar with some of the issues and higher criticism through his publisher, Joseph Johnson, who published authors like Johann David Michaelis and Herbert Marsh, who translated the former's Einleitung in das Neue Testament, Introduction to the New Testament, in 1795. According to Eleanor Schaffer, the new biblical criticism was well known among religious dissenting circles, radicals, and especially Unitarians. And Blake's acquaintance with these circles is well known. Although very interestingly, she says, the effects of the new criticism on his use of biblical materials has never been explored. At this point, we may recall that Swedenborg, a major influence on the early Blake, was himself a radical interpreter of the biblical texts so that the latter becomes, early on, a fiercely hermeneutic poet and visual symbolist. By hermeneutic, of course, I mean concerned with interpreting and or reinterpreting the traditions and the texts that come down to him. Uh, I'll say more about this as we come a little farther, but I, you can say here, just think of what Blake does with his Job and Dante illustrations which are not simply straight illustrations of the story of Job or the Divina Commedia, but comment on them from Blake's point of view. That, I think, is, is, is absolutely essential. Now, Heather Glenn's Vision and Disenchantment of 1983, dealing with songs of innocence and experience, is relevant here in that it reveals and highlights the song's critically interpretative use of received moral vocabularies. For example, Isaac Watts's Divine Songs for the Use of Children from 1715. Um, the kind of thing you will remember the Victorians took up. How doth the, the busy little bee improve the shining hour? Now, if you look at um, songs of experience, they are radically different in their kind of uh, uh, um, moral interpretation, if you like, of, of, of the realities of this world as Blake sees them. Um, fitting in with this is the poet painter's awareness of different ways of seeing. As a man is, says Blake, so he sees. As, his, as is his apparent consciousness of the presence of several different spiritual traditions which can nevertheless be unified. For instance, the 1788 tractate, All Religions Are One, thus concludes with, quote Blake, as all men are alike, though infinitely various, so all religions, and as all similars, have one source. This expresses a position, I think, which is close to that of religious syncretism. We can now look at a song of liberty, noting before we start that it is written out in the form of 20 numbered scripture-type verses, tersely dynamic in character, as befits the nature and rapid thrust of its narrative action. 
and culminating in a jubilantly prescriptive chorus, um, essentially being a highly compressed mythic chronicle interleaved with contemporary political events and wishful admonishments to some of those involved. It begins with a mythic frame and dimension. The eternal female groaned, it was heard over all the earth. For this and what follows, a statement by my old teacher, Kathleen Rain, provides the necessary overall gloss. Kathleen says this, Blake's use of myth gives history a spiritual context, relates it to the human soul and the demonic powers that move mankind to action. If you turn to your Song of Liberty now, which I will read, I think you, can, you will be able to decipher it quite well. Um, I will read it because I want to uh, look at it in some detail. Um, a Song of Liberty. The eternal female groaned, it was heard over all the earth. Albion's coast is sick, silent. The American meadows faint. Shadows of prophecy shiver along by the lakes and the rivers and mutter across the ocean, France, rend down thy dungeon, Golden Spain, burst the barriers of old Rome. Cast thy keys, O Rome, into the deep downfalling, even to eternity downfalling, and weep. In her trembling hand, she, shook, she took the newborn terror howling. On those infinite mountains of light, now barred out by the Atlantic Sea, the newborn fire stood before the starry king. Flagged with grey-browed snows and thunderous visages, the jealous wings waved over the deep. The speary hand burned aloft, and buckled was the shield. Forth went the hand of jealousy among the flaming hair, and hurled the newborn wonder through the starry night. The fire, the fire is falling. Look up, look up, O citizen of London. Enlarge thy countenance. O Jew, leave counting gold. Return to thy oil and wine. O African, black African, go winged thought, widen his forehead. The fiery limbs, the flaming hair, shot like the sinking sun into the western sea. Waked from his eternal sleep, the hoary element roaring fled away. Down rushed, beating his wings in vain, the jealous king. His grey-browed counsellors, thunderous warriors, curled veterans, among helms and shields and chariots, horses, elephants, banners, castles, slings and rocks. Falling, rushing, ruining, buried in the ruins on Athona's dens. All night beneath the ruins, then their sullen flames faded, emerge around the gloomy king. With thunder and fire leading his starry hosts through the waste wilderness, he promulgates his ten commands, glancing his beamy eyelids over the deep and dark dismay, where the sun of fire in his eastern cloud, while the morning plumes her golden breast, spurning the clouds written with curses, stamps the stony law to dust. Loosing the eternal horses from the dens of night, crying, Empire is no more, and now the lion and wolf shall cease. Then the chorus, Let the priests of the raven of dawn, no longer in deadly black, with hoarse note, curse the sons of joy. Nor his accepted brethren, whom tyrant he calls free, lay the bound or build the roof. Nor pale religious lechery call that virginity that wishes but acts not. For everything that lives is holy." Now, almost entirely text, but with tiny human figures, vegetation, birds, and animals scattered between the various lines, a song of liberty begins in the mythic past, with birth pangs heralding, in verse 7, the frightening appearance of a newborn terror howling. The eternal female who gives birth, a universal feminine principle, elsewhere identified as the figure Enitharmon, 
and later on associated with Vela, goddess of nature, would seem to encompass both the timeless world of myth and that of historic time. She and her offspring are operative in each, for immediately in verse 2, with Albion's coast is sick, silent, the American meadows faint, we have not only switched levels to Blake's own day and age, precisely marked by a change in tense to the historic present, which goes through to verse 6 before reverting, but also the state of things political and otherwise preceding the war of independence in Britain and America indicates prenatal sickness so that the mythical and political are momentarily fused. Shadows of prophecy are then seen shivering along by the American Great Lakes and darkly muttering across the ocean to France, Spain and Rome, that their civic and religious tyrannies be broken through or given up. Catholic Rome is asked to throw away St. Peter's keys, symbol of its legitimacy and authority, and weep. These two words, and weep that is, are given a verse to themselves. And this is significant, for everywhere in Blake we find that weeping and tears were not expressive of conscious or unconscious hypocrisy, also very Blakean and pre-Dickensian. Blake is very like Dickens in his insights into uh, hypocrisy, social and uh, personal hypocrisy. Denote a complete change of heart, a transformation from separate hardness to a new responsiveness of being that includes an emotional and spiritual freeing up of inner energies. Implied is a kind of metanoia or process of inner mutation by means of contrition which anticipates Blake's later primary concern in Milton and Jerusalem with the Christian forgiveness of sins. With verse 7, we switch back to the mythic past and the birth of the newborn terror, elemental in his identification as the son of fire, verse 19. In verse 8, he confronts his adversary. On those infinite mountains of light, now barred out by the Atlantic Sea, the newborn fire stood before the starry king. The exclamation mark pointing up, I think, a decisive event. This has taken place, of course, in the realm of Plato's Atlantis, the mythical island civilization inundated by the ocean, hence symbolizing a lost paradise and a golden age, a theme which Blake makes use of many times. In America, he places the magic seats of the 13 angels of the American colonies on the Atlantean hills, since they refuse to obey Albion's guardian, although these same hills have long ago been under the waves. Metaphorically, however, this is where the angels still belong, encapsulating the hill's ethos, those infinite mountains of light, with their characteristically positive adjective negating any kind of confinement, as in, quote Blake, he who sees the infinite in all things sees God. Atlantis then, as an embodiment of the uh, infinite and, of course, light, is able to penetrate our feel, field of perception as well as sometimes historical events. I'll quote one or two passages and give you the lines from America now, which you also have. This is, these are lines 107 to 9, 113 to 14. On those vast shady hills between America and Albion shore, now barred out by the Atlantic Sea called Atlantean Hills, because from their bright summits you may pass to the golden world. Here on their magic seats, the 13 angels sat perturbed, for clouds from the Atlantic hover o'er the solemn roof. However, the important thing to mention here is that Atlantis is being employed as an alternative to the biblical Eden, 
and that a song of liberty from verse 8 onwards is describing a descent and theological fall in mythic, not scriptural terms. In this sense, Blake is reinterpreting and rewriting the biblical account and putting forward his own version. This involves a number of things which become staple features of his mythology. For example, we get a confrontation in Atlantis between the Son of Fire and the Starry King, who, whatever his original relationship to the starry spheres, becomes in the bulk of the poet's work the deity ruling the world beneath the stars, the god of this world as Gnostic Demiurge, whom Blake identified with the Old Testament creator responsible for the Mosaic law. Hence, in our narrative, uh, quote, he promulgates his ten commands and his jealous wings waved over the deep. A deliberate recalling of, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Since as adjective here, it expresses no logically descriptive quality, in the Blake, that is. Its visual rendering, though, can be seen in the great yet, yet disturbing 1795 color print, the Elohim creating Adam, which I showed you last week, which depicts a fall prior to the actual biblical one. Uh, the, that is, the creation of man itself now constitutes the fall, hence a massively Gnostic reinterpretation on the artist's part. If you remember, you had, we had this view of Adam in a cruciform position uh, bound to the arc of the globe, and above him, God, with heavy kind of birds of prey wings. And around Adam's body, if you recall, um, the snake was entwined. Nothing like um, Michelangelo's creation of Adam in the Sistine Chapel. It, it, it is a pure act of suffering. And also, if you look at it again, you will find that the sun is setting. So at this particular point in his career, uh, Blake is very Gnostic in his reading of this particular world and the ruler of this world. Now, having been born and raised... Uh, then, um, a process America has more to tell us about, the Son of Fire confronts the Starry King, and it is this that propels the latter into direct action, thereby causing the youth's descent, um, but his own fall too. It is very much a conflict between youth and age. Um, since the fiery limbs, the flaming hair, featuring incandescent energy, are being opposed by a monarch who is flagged with grey-browed snows and thunderous visages together with a whole panoply of advisory, military, helpers, accoutrements, and possessions. One notes that, as against this roll call of military force and equipment with their elderly aides, the Son of Fire has nothing but his own demonic energy, which nevertheless is able to spurn the clouds written with curses and stamp the stony law to dust. He's clearly the rebel, the upstart, of whom the Starry King is justifiably envious, since his long-term authority is now being directly challenged. Our two mythic personages, both active at the historical level, become in America and Europe the youthful orc, spirit of cosmic revolt, as of specific revolutions, the fountainhead of liberating energy, plus the destruction this usually involves, and the aged Eurizen, patriarch of the moral law and rationalism who leads a continuous rearguard action to preserve his traditionally formidable powers. Now, this antagonism between youth and age embodies, in fact, an actual and characteristic syndrome of the age, uh, namely the new generational tension between the authority of parents 
and breakaway youth needing to, to, to assert itself, as in Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. If you read Jane, Jane Austen's Mansfield it's just been shown on television, this is why I'm reminded of it, um, when Sir Thomas, well, not only when he goes away before, actually, but he goes away, um, and the mice come out to play. His children and the Crawfords who come in um, get up to all kinds of things. And uh, Jane Austen is, is seeing the same problem as Blake, only she sees it from a somewhat different point of view. But it's important to stress this, because the theme comes up, say, in Keats's Hyperion, with its two generations of gods, and, of course, in Blake's own songs of experience with their damaged children. What all this seems to point to is a sense of growing polarization inside late 18th and early 19th century society, um, as well as a comparable disjunction in the collective psyche. I do not think that earlier in English literature you get this, um, what I call, generational conflict between parents and children. But you get something similar, certainly, and this is where there is a connection back to Romanticism, if you like, or what is happening, it's leading on to Romanticism, um, in our um, uh, 1960s, 1960s with the youth culture uh, and all the rest of it. And, of course, in, in Blake's time, um, I think this, this polarization um, also means that there's a, a similar polarization between um, reason and the rational establishment on the one hand, and what you might call the compound of emotion and instinct and intuition maybe, breaking away or breaking apart on the other. It seems to be that, the, that, the, that uh, earlier on, if you go back to Johnson and Pope, um, rationality holds um, whatever there is of instinct and, and the emotions in check or in a kind of balance, but with rationality having the upper control on it. By the time you get certainly to the 1780s, um, this is seen to be breaking down. And when you come to the 1790s, there's a kind of, of a breakthrough um, uh, through the floodgates, as it were. Um, the ensuing uh, um, battles, as elsewhere in the early prophetic books, engage Blake's imagination fully. And as Stanley Gardner argues in Infinity on the Anvil, even take place within the language and the symbolism, where we find, quote Gardner, the bringing of symbol into conflict with symbol in these books. Um, for example, Orc is the newborn fire and the newborn terror, bearing with him both conflagration and fear, possesses fiery limbs and flaming hair, which, con which connote fierce combustion plus vigorous growth and are then described as having shot like the sinking sun into the western sea, all of this being implicitly opposed by Eurizen's imagery of grey-browed snows and thunderous visages. Um, hence, inwardly as outwardly, um, Eurizen remains the gloomy king, ruler of darkness and night. Orc, on the other hand, represents Eurizen's cosmic opposite, the sun, albeit sinking as he falls. But then, towards the close of our narrative, he is identified with the dawn's release of light a romantic revolutionary affiliation typical of the period, as in Wordsworth's famous two lines, bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. One point to note here, Auckland's in the Western Sea with its associations of the Atlantic and America, where revolt begins, and that waked from his eternal sleep the hoary element roaring fled away, as if the descending ball of fire rudely singes and scatters the waves together with their presiding deity, 
whose hoary nature links him back to Eurizen's grey-browed snows. This sea deity, I now suspect, is the first unnamed appearance of Thamas, later called Parent Power and Rough Demon of the Waters, the first and most mysterious of the four Zoas, the four beasts whose mythic... Uh, those mythic uh, archetypes or personification of archetypal forces um, are at work in the soul or psyche just as in the microcosm and history at large and of whom Eurizen, like Athona, is one. When Eurizen falls, it is significantly after Orc's dramatic sunset which the citizen of London, the Jew and the black African of verse 12 are implying that he cannot do anything else but fall. He haplessly lands, buried in ruins on Athona's dens during the darkness of, of, of night. All night beneath the ruins and their sullen flames faded, emerged round the gloomy king. Eurizen and his soldiery then also have their fires like orc, but they're differently qualified. Their flames are appropriately sullen, thus mirroring the gloom of their king and his mood of dark dismay. They are exactly the same as those vented by the forces of, re of repression in the prophecy section of America. This is almost at the beginning, but there's no need to turn to it. There's only three lines. The guardian prince of Albion burns in his nightly tent. Sullen fires across the Atlantic glow to America's shore, piercing the souls of warlike men who rise in silent night. Um, Blake's arsenal of images and symbols, his descriptive and highly verbal vocabulary are almost always fairly clear-cut and oppositional, as in songs of innocence and experience. But there, are, but, there, um, but there is elsewhere, and especially in the world of experience, where things are so often double-tongued and not what they seem, certain images and actions are used in subvertive, ironic ways, as already implied in the case of And Weep. Or again, Boston's angel accusingly declaiming what pitying angels lust for tears and fans himself with sighs. Significantly, there are two kinds of angel in America, Boston's and Albion's. And as in A Song of Liberty, so in other writings, we get the eastern cloud and the cloud on which the child sits in the introductory poem to Innocence. I don't know if you remember, the, 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 there's a frontispiece in the Songs of Innocence where we see um, um, a male naked figure with a, with a winged child and we also see on, on his head, and we also see the child on a cloud. Um, anyway, the, the, these clouds are opposed to Eurizen's clouds written with curses. Then his own horses are so different from the eternal horses from the dens of night released by Orc. And yet again the returning dawn of liberty where the sun of fire in his eastern cloud while the morning plumes a golden breast is exquisitely imaged as the bird that is born for joy in the experienced poem, The Schoolboy. Whereas in the chorus we have um, the contrasted and hostile raven of dawn with his priests in deadly black lay the bound or build the roof, actions that betray themselves as limiting and enclosing. Although in major ways anti-enlightenment, anti-rational, anti-mechanistic, anti-deist, Blake certainly retained its powerful critique of kings and priests, as of institutions, laws, and charters. Hence the starry king and the priests of the Raven of Dawn, together with its rejection of religious superstition and mystery, as in his use of the pervasive symbol of the tree of mystery, first employed in the human abstract, 
soon spreads the dismal shade of mystery over his head. Then associated throughout with the dark power of Eurizen, a known abstracted brooding secret whose creation it is, and which is further seen in the book of Ahania to self-multiply, enrooting itself all around an endless labyrinth of woe. Mystery is not a positive term in Blake's uh, uh, work at all. A Song of Liberty, then, to sum up, is a key text for understanding the initial development of Blake's mythology and his vision of history. It is a relatively uncomplicated blueprint for all this, compact, vividly controlled, and with the visually dynamic quality of the great color prints of 1795, executed in a kind of visual shorthand. What is more, the mythological figures appearing in this short work both in their, both their descriptive features and spiritual historical roles, as well as the states of mind and terrain they inhabit, are prototypical for the rest of the poet's output. The images and symbolic actions associated with them, expressive of their individual natures, possess their own consistency and logic, so that we should be able to follow them and their expanding lives in the relevant later poems um, and designs without too much difficulty. If you turn to the last sheet on your, um, <coughs> sheet on, on, on your handouts, uh, you will see that I've put there the um, visual reputation. I put it in slide form last week um, from Blake's poem Milton of what I called a mandala setup. And here you get the full worked-out scheme um, as a sketch of Blake's um, mythological creatures, who, of course, are the same things as what you might call energies um, and their reverse um, in the human psyche. Um, and here, of course, in the center, you get the mundane shell, as he calls it, or the cosmic egg that you get in Orphism, and you get in Hinduism as well, and many other uh, um, um, symbolic systems, and you see there uh, the two um, opposites, Adam and Satan, and there, of course, Othona at the top, Thamas, the one I've mentioned, um, the demon of the waters, Eurizen is down the bottom, and at the side is Lover, um, <coughs> of which, of whom uh, um, um, one can say that Orc is the fallen form. Lover represents feeling. Um, and roundabout, you get the, um, as um, Kathleen Raine says, not in her book on Blake, uh, uh, interestingly, but in her book, Yeats the Initiate, where she describes uh, Blake's debt, uh, uh, Yeats's debt to Blake, around the, uh, these five, uh, these four con uh, uh, concentric circles, or four circles and the egg, you get the flames or the fires of the divine essence. So in some sense, it is both cosmic as well as internally cosmic. Um, <coughs> but the point I'm trying to make is that once one start with, start, we're talking about understanding Blake. The song of, a Song of Liberty and indeed America are the first two versions of this mythological complex that, to which characters or figures get added, as it were. And becomes more, and these four figures have their own female emanations as well. So it gets very, very complex. But once one starts at the beginning, it is, as it were, a kind of way in. 
And as an instance of what I mean, take this passage, start with, start with talking about understanding Blake. The song of, a Song of Liberty and indeed America are the first two versions of this mythological complex that, to which characters or figures get added, as it were. And becomes more, and these four figures have their own female emanations as well. So it gets very, very complex. But once one starts at the beginning, it is, as it were, a kind of way in. <clears throat> and as an instance of what I mean, take this passage describing Orc, which, typical for Blake, reworks and partly repeats his portrait from A Song of Liberty, yet extends and particularizes it quite dramatically. Not least because the demon red is replying to his political adversary, Albion's angel, and at the same time declaring his identity and mission. If you turn to lines 59 to 72 in America, <coughs> you get this reply. The terror answered, I am orc, wreathed round the accursed tree. The times are ended, shadows pass, the morning begins to break. The fiery joy that Euryson perverted to ten commands... What night he led the starry host through the wide wilderness, that stony law I stamped to dust and scattered religion abroad to the four winds as a torn book. And none shall gather the leaves, but they shall rot on desert sands and consume in bottomless deeps to make the deserts blossom and the deeps shrink to their fountains and to renew the fiery joy and burst the stony roof. That pale religious lechery seeking virginity may find it in a harlot and in coarse-clad Honesty, the undefiled, though ravished in her cradle night and morn. For everything that lives is holy. Life delights in life, because the soul of sweet delight can never be defiled. Not at all typical for his day and age. Words, phrases, whole statements are quoted here from A Song of Liberty, so that coming to this from the earlier text, we have our bearings. And although Orc and his attendant symbols clearly possess their own developing logic, it is quite likely that Blake himself was aware that his, rep that his repetition of already used symbols and formulaic phrases would give his potential readers easier and surer access to this unusual world. For example, it is quite obvious that the same terror in both works is celebrating the end of night and darkness with the oppressive qualities these denote and welcoming the dawn of a new spirit, a new liberty. Just as in both, he stamps the stony law to dust, crying here in America that the times are ended. In A Song of Liberty, that empire is no more, and now the lion and wolf shall cease. The block capitals indicating something in the nature, I think, of a placard, a piece of political apocalyptic propaganda, which incidentally is again repeated in America just prior to the passage quoted. The Appalachian Terror also possesses specific topical overtones. In 1793, the year of printing, is that of the French Revolution's reign of terror. From the 5th of September, 1793, to the 27th of July, 1794. Um, both A Song of Liberty and America portray Eurozen as proclaiming Moses-like his Ten Commands while leading his starry hosts through the waste or wide wilderness. But in the second instance, the text is given a developed twist in that the Ten Commands are now viewed as a perversion of a fiery joy. However, we define this. The latter is, in fact, a constant Blakean uh, positive which the poet holds up against all outward pressures from the surrounding Eurozenic world 
as with the mine-forged manacles of the poem London. That is, the manacles that are forged for the mind and also by the mind. So it's both outer and inner in that poem, if you look at it. It is an essential feature, the joy now, of the state of innocence, quote, when the green woods laugh with the voice of joy. And, of course, in the poem titled Infant Joy, epitomizing all this, the more specific fiery joy linked with Orc introduces fire as a liberating yet destructively cleansing agent that is both pristine and intrinsically libidinal, perhaps not libidinous, Orc's aim being to make the deserts bloom and the deep shrink to their fountains and to renew the fiery joy and burst the stony roof. At the same time, immediately following these lines, this same element is prospectively connected with the overthrow of pale religious lechery. Orc's ensuing conflagration is of an obviously sexual nature. Fires enwrap the earthly globe, yet man is not consumed amid the lustful fires he walks. His feet become like brass. Um, and later, in, if you turn to, uh, um, to lines 196 to 203 in America, we get this. Um, we get a picture of what is frankly a kind of sexual resurrection. The doors of marriage are open, and the priests in rustling scales rush into reptile coverts, hiding from the fires of orc that play around the golden roofs in wreaths of fierce desire leaving the females naked and glowing with the lusts of youth. For the female spirits of the dead, pining in bonds of religion, run from their fetters reddening, and in long-drawn arches sitting, they feel the nerves of youth renew, and desires of ancient times over their pale limbs, as a vine when the tender grape appears. I mean, some of the insights that you get here <coughs> distinctively, uh, distinctly anticipate, um, anticipate Freud, over a hundred years later. Now, as the simile in this last line reminds us, Blake makes extensive use of biblical language and imagery, as with his feet become like brass, but this is all woven into language and imagery drawn on very different linguistic poetic areas, such as the 18th century Gothic of this, Albion's garden writhed in torment on the eastern sky, pale quivering toward the brain, his glimmering eyes, teeth chattering, howling and shuddering, his, his legs quivering, convulsed each muscle and sinew. Or the Miltonic and 18th century epic of Then Mars thou wast our centre, and the planets three flew round thy crimson disc, so ere the sun was rent from thy red sphere. Or again, the heightened contemporary rhetoric of this, is lines 84 to 6, for terrible men stand on the shores, and in their robes I see children take shelter from the lightnings. There stands Washington and Payne and Warren, with their foreheads reared toward the east. Overdramatized here by Albion's angel, as if part of a government speech of the day. And finally, from his adversary, Boston's angel, this radical moral questioning of public hypocrisy. These are lines 1, 2, 1 to 6. Who commands this? What God? What angel? To keep the generous from experience till the ungenerous are unrestrained performers of the energies of nature, till pity has become a trade and generosity a science that men get rich by. And the sandy desert is given to the strong. What God is he writes laws of peace and clothes him in a tempest? This has even today quite specific relevance, I think. What we therefore 
paralleling the strange mixture uh, we mentioned earlier. Contributory factors complicating this weave are the influence of Ossian McPherson's loose syntax and long-drawn-out similes, Gray's Pindaric Odes with their northern mythic roots in the Icelandic Eddas, which Blake knew, and Collins' Odes on the various emotions, the Ode to Pity, Ode to Fear, and the Passions, an Ode for Music, which undoubtedly provided the poet with a method for expressing extreme and naked emotions as associated with their respective mythological deities. Finally, topping all this, in the later works, there is the introduction of a considerable amount of philosophical and mystical technical terms which give the verse a somewhat outlandishly abstract quality, such as the Cartesian vortexes and Bermian opening of centers and limits of opaqueness and contraction pointed out by Kathleen Rain, while at the same time these are in part responsible for its peculiar distinctiveness. Connected with all this is the increasing tendency to explain rather than to enact, as with the powerful Book of Eurism. Um, but it is important to remember that Blake's linguistic, like his imaginative and mythic synthesis, mutates somewhat from one work to another. Now, America, like Europe, is divided into two sections. Its main prophecy and its introductory preludium, which takes place in the spiritual mythological realm. Um, and as the term preludium indicates, this section is preparatory and determining for the prophecy itself just like the pregnancy of the eternal female and the birth of the newborn terror at the beginning of A Song of Liberty. The mythic spiritual realm here is only more expanded and the dual role of Red Orc, both there and in the contemporary world below, more pronounced. Something to remind us of the intertwined nature of the relationship between these two in Blake's metaphysical view of things and especially the influence of the former on the latter. The mythic spiritual move within the historical so as to create uh, specific historical changes. As Blake himself puts it in Milton, Plate 28, every natural effect has a spiritual cause and not a natural, for a natural cause only seems. Such a fiercely anti-Newtonian declaration is at the same time very Swedenborgian. For as Kathleen Raine forcibly points out in the opening chapter to her Blake and Tradition, just reprinted, by the way, uh, in Routledge, the ultimate dependence of the physical on the spiritual throughout the poet's work is due, apart from innate disposition, to Swedenborg's doctrine of influx, which, as she says, fits in with other spiritual traditions. I quote Kathleen on this now. In common with the Platonic schools and the Hermetic, Gnostic, Kabbalistic, and alchemical traditions, and indeed with Christian doctrine, all of which Blake was deeply versed in, Swedenborg taught that natural cause only seems. The world of nature and of man himself are but the lowest terms in a series of dependent spiritual causes. Natural forms and appearances of all kinds are the outward manifestation of a spiritual life and energy whose effects we see as the phenomena of nature. This Swedenborg calls influx. In Swedenborg's, in Swedenborg's words then, and she quotes Swedenborg, Swedenborg from heaven and hell now, the whole natural world corresponds to the spiritual world, both in the whole and likewise in its several parts. And what exists and subsists in the natural from the spiritual is called correspondence. Now the whole world exists and subsists from the spiritual as an effect from its efficient cause. 
In the preludium, then, which outlines an original mythic situation, the young orc, already chained down by a thoner, the name being a Blakian pun, earth owner, is brought food in iron baskets and drink in cups of iron by his shadowy daughter, who acts as jailer. The situation parallels that of Aeschylus's Prometheus Bound, which Blake, of course, knew, and where Athona as earth deity is like Zeus in what he has done. Dark virgin, said the hairy youth, thy father stern abhorred, rivets my tenfold chains, while still on high my spirit soars. It's lines 11 to 12. Which places the fallen Athona close to the tyrant Eurizen and orc to the rebel Prometheus. Totally an Iskalian, however, is the nature of Orc's escape into freedom, for in true Blakean fashion, the impetus provided is that of sexual desire. Uh, these are now lines 21 to 25 from the Preludium. Silent as despairing love and strong as jealousy, the hairy shoulders rend the links. Free are the wrists of fire. Round the terrific loins, he sees the panting, struggling womb. It joyed. She put aside her clouds and smiled her firstborn smile, as when a black cloud shows its lightnings to the silent deep. Yet as with the famous bring me my arrows of desire and other lines, the connotation can be more generalized and not so specifically sexual. For desire with Blake is an overall concept and state of mind, defining the central, denoting an irresistible movement towards a fulfillment revolutionary and or transcendent. Indeed, it is intrinsically related to the faculty of imagination and in this sense is freedom-laden, tolerating no restrictions. Hence, in his early 1788 tractates, there is no natural religion, one and two, quote Blake, man's desires linked to his perceptions, they first appear as one of the basic factors of life. As in, quote Blake now, the desires and perceptions of man, untaught by anything but organs of sense, must be limited to objects of sense. Yet in contrast, quote Blake again, man's perceptions are not bounded by organs of perception. He perceives more than sense, though ever so acute, can discover. And, Blake, the bounded is loathed by its possessor. Finally, the decisive, the desire of man being infinite, the possession is infinite, and himself infinite. Thus, uh, the early Blake's type of spirituality can be seen to be charted in terms of the infinite desire and the bounded. Uh, with God defined by the first of these, Orc by the second, and Eurizen by the third. Desire linked to the infinite, for less than all can it satisfy man, he says, is the way to God which is constantly being hampered in a myriad different ways within the history of the poet's own times by the bounded um, in all its forms under the aegis of Eurizen's stony law. It is therefore not strange to realize that desire in its widest sense becomes a key concept and quality of the age in art. We can see this from Nicholas Boyle's major new biography of Blake's contemporary Goethe which is subtitled The Poetry of Desire. Boyle describes Goethe's, quote, literary art as an art not of possession, but of desire. That unfulfilled desire for the always absent object being the origin of his personal as of his literary magnetism. Blake's and Goethe's work can then be said to fuse later, I think, or perhaps dissolve, 
into a more diffuse state of romantic yearning, such as we get in Shelley's Desire of the Moth for the Star, Novalis's Hymnen an die Nacht, Hymns to the Night, or, say, Wagner's Endlose Melody, Endless Melody, expressions of continuous yearning. America's preludium, then, gives desire mythic credence and substance. Orc is its adolescent embodiment of 14 sons, and as its personification, is able to rend the links with which Athona has chained him to the rock. Uh, for we recall that he says, in spite of my tenfold chains, still on high my spirit soars, in the shape-shifting forms of lion, eagle, whale, and uh, I think this is where the name in part comes from, orc or orca as killer whale, uh, and a serpent folding around the pillars of Athona, and round thy dark limbs on the, on the Canadian wilds I fold. Where the shadowy daughter is specifically referred to and associated with the wilderness of the new world, all of this is spoken while orcs' chains are being riveted. And he continues with, Feeble my spirit folds, for chained beneath I rend these caverns, where, though temporarily cowed in a locale suggestive of his own name, Orcus as the Latin underworld, this does not hinder his rending activity. It does, however, seem as if the visits from his jailer help to polarize the situation. For, quote, when thou bringest food, I howl my joy and my red eyes seek to behold thy face. Just as in reverse, when they mate, she first smiles and for the first time speaks. Blake is quite specific about her muteness. But dumb till that dread day when Orca said his fierce, his fierce embrace. It would thus seem that just as he needs her, the shadowy daughter of Earth, more particularly of the Canadian wilds and American plains, to propel him into action, she likewise needs to find him in order to become vocal. Lines 27 to 31, I know thee, I have found thee, and I will not let thee go. Thou art the image of God who dwells in darkness of Africa, and thou art fallen to give me life in regions of dark death. On my American plains, I feel the struggling afflictions endured by roots that writhe their arms into the nether deep. In some sense, you get here a marriage of opposites, and a marriage particularly of the element of fire, which is orc, with the element of earth, which is the shadowy daughter. To this extent, I think I would regard that as a kind of um, at least quasi-alchemical solution to this particular political, mythical problem. Now, the image of God who dwells in darkness of Africa connects Orc with the enslaved, as do his appearances a few lines later in the form of in Mexico an eagle and a lion in Peru, where oppressive governments of the day rule. Moreover, the purpose of Orc's presence is, thou art fallen to give me life in regions of dark death, which informs us that there has not only been a fall, but that its purpose is to regenerate life in regions otherwise dead. Here we have a clear reference to the spiritual cause that produces uh, the specific natural effect of America's war of independence. Perhaps we also get overtones of Orcus Christ. Quote Matthew 10, 34, I came not to send peace, but a sword. The nameless female, as the spirit of America, therefore, feels the struggling afflictions caused by thy fire and my frost, uh, mingling in howling pains, which is the impact made by Orc's presence in her world. The frost of her nature aligns her with Eurizen, the mythic personification of all that is frosty, icy, life-congealing, 
so that I take it she has been under his sway until the fire's arrival. In any case, at the end of America, Uriton himself, who sat above all heavens, raises his leprous head from out his holy shrine, flagged with gray-browed snows, um, just as in a song of liberty. Um, And this arsenal of snows and ice is pitted against orcs' fires and first results in this, hiding the demon red with clouds and cold mists from the earth till angels and weak men twelve years should govern over the strong and then their end should come when France received the demon's light. He's making a connection between the American and the French revolutions, of course. And this is exactly the length of time between the American and French revolutions from 1776 to 1789, during which reactionary forces reasserted their control for Blake. However, his prophecy ends on an upbeat note with the successful close to the War of Independence in its defeat of Albion, something that causes consternation both at the level of the ironically named heavenly thrones and that of their still repressive governments. This is towards the end of the poem, lines 219 to 21. Stiff shuddering shook the heavenly thrones, France, Spain, and Italy, in terror viewed the bands of Albion, and the ancient guardians, fainting upon the elements, smitten with their own plagues. These are the plagues which, during the course of the epic confrontations uh, and battle that make up the bulk of the action, are hurled upon America by Albion's angel, and which, being intercepted by the red flames of Orc and withstood by Washington, Franklin, Payne, and Warren, Gates, and Lee, recoil upon him. The upshot is a weakened, last-minute attempt, a slow advance, as the text puts it, to pull up the drawbridges by shutting the five gates of their law-built heaven. These are, I take it, an image of the five senses, those still and cleansed doors of perception, to refer back to the marriage of heaven and hell, responsible for creating the laws which underpin Albion's heaven in the first place. The fires of Orc burn the gates up, melting their bolts and hinges, thereby initiating, one assumes, very different sense perceptions, hence an alternative vision of things. Early in the prophecy, we were told that the British soldiers through the 13 states are not only seeking where to hide from the grim flames, but also from the visions of Orc, whereby not simply revolutionary destruction is indicated, but the various sightings of Orc himself and his own projected manifestations of his active presence, thereby displaying a totally different perceptual reality. This is what the last five lines of Blake's prophecy direct us to. A successful political outcome to rebellion, yes, but also more fundamentally to a new vision of life. Thank you.